This is the Only Human podcast from Community Radio 4 Z out of Brisbane, Australia. And you're listening to Only Human on 4 Z and Zed's Diddle um, with Stephen, Kim, Nathan, Winifred and Belle. What's on today's show, um, Kim? Today we have in the studio Dr. Winifred Lewis from the University of Queensland and she's going to talk to us about a whole lot of things, all of this different research that her students have done over the last few years. Yeah, it's really one of the most rewarding parts of the job, Kim, and um, it's just so exciting when the projects come to fruition and all the research starts to get gets published. So I'm excited to talk about some of that with you folks today. Yes, today we're talking about some of the research Winifred's done with her students and some of it has been uh, talked about on a new website she set up too called Social Change Lab. So if you want to know some more about it, you can look at that later. But first of all, let's talk about your first topic, which you've uh, nominated, violent extremism. Uh, I'm sure we're all interested in how people come to be violent extremists. Is that what the research was about? Well, indirectly, um, my student Cecilo Wibisono comes from Indonesia. And so there they have problems of violent extremism like we have here. And he was really interested in the fact that religious identity as a Muslim can be associated with activism and volunteerism and positive social change, and then there can also be this dynamic of violent extremism in some people. So he wanted to understand the relationship between a religious identity and how it would develop and how it might link to something like violence as opposed to something like activism. And those of you that know my work, which is maybe no one in the room, but um, will not be surprised to hear that it's partly about norms, which are the rules um, that groups have for how people should act. And of course, almost all religions have norms of love and, um, you know, peace and justice and mm. that's really part of what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a Muslim you know day-to-day life is about service and serving your neighbor loving your neighbor and so we're really interested in understanding um, violent extremism as a kind of tactic you know I've studied collective action for a long time and so what Cecilo did was he would survey um, Muslims in Indonesia from a variety of backgrounds and ask them about how they felt about their religion on the one hand, and also different forms of collective action that they might take to support um, the Muslim community. Like, I don't know if you remember, but in Indonesia, there was a big, big protest of millions of people a couple of years ago around a perceived blasphemy of a governor of Jakarta. And so millions of people mobilized around that across the country. So he was looking at people's support for rallies and petitions, but also um, things like you know, volunteering and so on. And then he was looking at support for violence. And to make a long story short, um, we were, what we found was that the perception of threat and the perception of these norms is really the critical factor that has to emerge for something to develop that links a religion like Christianity or Islam to violence. So for most everyday Christians here in Australia, it would be completely unthinkable to pick up a gun and try and shoot down innocent civilians of another um, religion that has nothing to do with your faith. But um, to the extent that people go into these uh, communities, whether that's online or in person, they start having conversations about the threats posed by other groups and developing a mutual norm where they're supporting each other. They perceive that it's appropriate that other people are doing this. You know, that's really a part of the stepping stone process. So um, to uh, to combat that, it's very interesting because it becomes a question of how you link in with these other groups and how people normally choose to link into terrorist groups, as you can well imagine, as they prefer to fight them with their military or jail them. <laughs> you know, there's really very little engagement. But as we've seen um, all around the world, 
that although it is possible for a terrorist movement to end when everyone is you know killed or put in jail another way that the terrorist movements end is when they rejoin the nonviolent process the political process whether that's in Ireland or other forms of advocacy so that process of engagement is really important and also more mundanely when people leave violent extremist groups they can be quite stigmatized it's like leaving a gang mm. so in indonesia when people come out of prison and so on it's really important for community members to integrate them and welcome them but what usually happens is community members absolutely reject them yeah and yeah you don't want to have someone move back into your neighborhood or your village right so these tensions and dynamics can arise that are a bit um, self-perpetuating and a vicious cycle where, just like with criminal gangs, where the reintegration process is really hard politically to find money for. Indonesia has so many challenges, and they're not necessarily going to spend money you know, on, on projects. Um, for Although there are many volunteer efforts and there are many um, programs that people are trying to put forward. So that was the kind of topic that Cecilia was looking at. And the probably one take-home message is that we found overall, as you would expect, that the more people identified as a, as a Muslim, the less they supported violent extremism. Really? Right? So that's, oh. yeah, that's a normal pattern. Similarly to the more you identify as a Christian, the less you should endorse shooting other people. Right? Do you think that um, yeah. involves uh, sort of a more in-depth, understanding of their holy kind of texts yes yes well there is an amazing argument about that here in the west as you probably know converts are far more likely to um they're overrepresented in the um in the in the ranks of islamist terrorists Mm -hmm. and the argument is partly that um they're overrepresented because they don't actually know the core tenets of the faith and they might have been radicalized in prison and so on and they're exposed to this really selective process. Mm-hmm. I perceive that could really be relevant as well. I don't actually know the background of, of many of the Christian extremists, but for example, the, the Christchurch shooter, you know, it's difficult to imagine that he was part of a normal religious community for him to be exposed to normal tenets of the faith. Mm. So I do think that not having that in-depth knowledge, it's, it's certainly been argued that having an amplified voice for, um, you know, normal or moderate Muslim Uh, religious leaders would be really important. Mm -hmm. In the um, second generation of immigrant communities, there's often a disconnect between kids and their parents, though. So, you know, here in the West, as as we can imagine around the world, sometimes there's a distinction between the parents who really are more traditional and are closely connected to the heritage, culture, and community, and the kids that are really finding their way in that Mm -hmm. new modern world. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think necessarily that having a lot of well-meaning moderate Muslim, you know, um, elders lecture them is going to be an answer for everything. <laughs> no, yeah. No, no. yeah. <laughs> but it is relevant in the in the case of Indonesia, because of course, they're like here, there's a big diversity, but there they have, um, you know, as you probably know, nearly 300 million people and, you know, heaps of islands, heaps of languages, lots okay. going on. And sometimes it's easy for only one group to capture a lot of the attention and money and resources. Mm. And the problem groups um, are often kind of represented in the prisons and so on. But looking at that big picture is really interesting and important. Yeah, I remember talking to you after uh, uh, the Crosschurch shooting about what you thought caused people to become radicalised. And I think at the time you were saying there was also an aspect of uh, young men being somehow 
isolated from the community, not being yeah. part of the community. Yeah, well, there's really, there's multiple pathways to radicalization, but in from a group's perspective, the, the one that's really important is to distinguish between people who are radicalizing alone and people who are radicalizing as part of groups. And here in the West, we're really overrepresented with these lone wolves. Yeah. So they tend to um, be isolated from their, you know, disconnected sometimes from their family, isolated from their community, problems of unemployment and discrimination and and some um, stigma that they experience can be part of what's driving them away from mainstream values and norms and having them search online for meaning mm, or a, a need for significance. Validation, I think, of yeah. sort of that if you f- are feeling disaffected and somebody yeah. comes up with this answer and yeah. solution as to improving your situation, yeah. whether that be through violence or things like that. Then. Yeah, and there's thousands of people that are attracted to that kind of um, propaganda online without ever being motivated to kill people. Mm. So that's an important distinction that should be made. Mm. Um, but the reality is that um, there's quite a different pathway for many kids in Indonesia and even sometimes here in the West where you might just come along to a violent extremist group because you've been invited to by your uncle or you know, in, in one case that I was learning about in Indonesia, the extremists set up a gym and they attracted, you know, young people. They were offering free and cheap gym memberships. And that's a, an entry pathway. You don't go to a gym thinking, oh, I'm going to meet people that are going to talk to me about terror uh, and, and violence. Yeah, unusually, that, well, perhaps not unusually, that's exactly the same thing that the, the religious groups and that uh, social workers use to try and uh, yeah. reach disaffected individuals. Well, that, there's a real continuity between violent extremism and, um, you know, gangs in the, se- in the sense of these lone wolves or marginalized youth. Um, so, you know, that's a that's something that rec- that's being exploited by recruiters. Yeah. <laughs> it's really troubling. It is. And of course, the, the same thing with lurking in communities um, for young people and young men in particular, trying to pick out people that might be more vulnerable and really almost, you know, how pedophiles groom people online. There's a process like that of mm. trying to identify and really zoom in on people, build relationships. We might... Um go to a song in a minute but before we do if people want to read more about that research can they find that at the social change yes we do have a publications page although i know you know this kim but when you read those publications they're often not at all easy to understand (laughs) for an ordinary person but if anyone would like to receive copies of the publications you can click through from the page or email me so that uh that website is socialchangelab.net yeah we're going to go to a song we'll come back and talk again to dr winifred lewis from the university of queensland department of psychology talking about various student projects. You're listening to Only Human on 4ZZZ and Z Digital. Hi, my name is Stoke and you listen to 4ZZZ on 102.1 FM. Well, Winifred, um, I would like to ask you some questions about the environmental theory and research that you've been doing and uh, your students have been doing? I'm really just so excited to talk about it. The work that I'm talking about now is mostly in collaboration with Robin Gulliver. She was the PhD student who led the project and also in collaboration with Dr. Kelly Fielding. Mm -hmm. And so that work really looked in the first instance at trying to map the entire Australian environmental movement. So Mm -hmm. Robin did an enormous web scraping project where she found all the groups she could find on the internet mm. and 
took out the environmental groups that were more oriented to looking after the earth, like um, restorative works, tree planting, and focused in on the environmental advocacy groups that Mm -hmm. were taking collective action. Then she coded all the campaigns that they were doing and the target of the campaign, what the, what the campaign was trying to do. And then she identified all the um, actions that were taken. Mm-hmm. And we're talking thousands of actions over a period of... How many years was yeah, it over? <laughs> well, they, she ended up um, tracking at least over four years in detail, but we have some historical data that goes back much further, wow. including the year of founding of the groups with the earliest groups um, being in the 1800s. I mean, oh, it's yeah. really amazing, yeah. yeah. So um, after we had mapped all the actions, all the targets, all the goals, then she went back and tried to source media data uh, to confirm whether the campaigns worked or not. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, with Stop Adani, uh, the movement um, to attempt to stop the big coal mine uh, up north in Queensland, with the company now being called Bravus, of course. Um, you might think, well, it obviously hasn't worked because it's still pushing ahead. But along the way, um, there are kind of intermediary goals, like trying to get uh, banks and insurers to, to avoid the project, trying to delay the project, um, promoting addressing water issues. And each of those has been um, often successful, even as the bigger picture has been a rearguard action. Having said that, um, delaying a huge project for more than 10 years and counting, you know, can be seen as a partial victory, partial defeat. Mm. But um, the campaigns go on, right? The mm. battle goes on. So we looked across an enormous range of collective action targets. And to make a long story short, we found there were some surprising details that we don't think most people know. The first was many campaigns, it's actually really hard to tell if they worked or not, which probably indicates a design flaw in the campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. So like with everything else, when it's being mobilized by volunteers, sometimes people will put in a lot of energy, but not necessarily have a lot of training and systematic guidance. So um, one of the things that we recommend to activist groups is that they consider what the goals of their actions are and trying to engage that with mm-hmm. the campaign title and the materials and so on. And that'll help mobilize supporters and also help evaluate whether you're doing the right thing. Um, there are also a lot of um, actions that succeeded. So if I asked you guys what proportion of environmental collective action do you think succeeds, you'd probably say, well, not that much because the whole earth is going downhill really rapidly. 20%? Yeah, it's much (laughs) higher in in our data set, yeah. And um, that is among among the ones where you know the outcome. So a large minority of the actions, you don't know whether it succeeded or failed because it's impossible to code because you can't really tell what the campaign's for. Um, But among the ones where we know, it seems as though the success rate ranges between 25 and 75%, depending on other factors, yeah. Mm. And the biggest factor that predicted success was the target. So it's much harder to influence politicians through collective action, interestingly, and much easier to influence businesses. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we think is really relevant and interesting for activists to know and to really Mm. think about Mm. moving forward. When you look at what Australia is doing, businesses are taking the lead on climate change related well, that's, policy, that's right. And even the industry bodies are trying to get certainty for investment and also to align with the European and American trajectories. Obviously, we can't be left behind, or if we are left behind, our economy is really going to suffer. Mm. So part of what's happening is 
you know, everyone looking at the at the way ahead is seeing a transition coming. Mm-hmm. And is that transition being proactively managed by Australia or do people have their head in the sand there? So it is really interesting to think about um, the role of businesses positively in leading change and and how activists, you know, can move beyond the stereotype that activists don't work with business and don't like them and are somehow anti-business or anti-jobs, which is we all know is not the case, and how there can be a bit more um, amplifying of those positive industry voices and mm. and also helping in industries to transition. Do you, um, did you analyze, uh, I suppose, the types of areas that uh, were being targeted by activists? Were there uh, a really r- diverse range of movements yeah. from, you know, anti-fracking. Yeah. Um, yes, we did. Pollution. And it was extraordinary. It was so yeah. fun. I mean, that was another aspect um, of the papers with Robin Gulliver. And I just encourage anyone to Google them and we'll also be happy to send them. Although, as I said before, they can be a bit jargony. But, you know, there's hundreds of groups and going back decades and even over a century. Mm. And so... Nearly half of the modern advocacy movement in Australia, interestingly, is still connected to the historical roots of conservation. Mm-hmm. Conservation is the core. And then the new ones coming in from the 50s onwards were kind of pollution, mining, mm-hmm. you know, anti-nuclear was connected to the environment movement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then looking at sustainability and, of yeah. course, in the last t- 20 years, climate justice. So it's just wonderful to see the diversity of actors and look at that um, build over time. Mm-hmm. The um, graph, there's a, a blog on our socialchangelab.net and if you search for Robin's name you'll find a post about one of the articles which reproduces this graph of the growing number of groups over time. It's just wonderful. Do you think that um, uh, maybe a turning point for uh, maybe activism, environmental activism, originates perhaps in Tasmania with um, yeah. the anti-dam. Sort of the um, Franklin yes, River. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I because I only came to Australia in 2001, I am not uh, aware of that personally, but I'm very aware of it from the historical narratives. Mm-hmm. And so the peace movement in the 60s and the Franklin River, these are some of the roots of the environmental movement that people will mention. I think um, we're, we've got a, a few topics to cover, so we might have to keep on... Um, moving. So, Kim, what was the next topic that we were interested uh, in? Well, our next topic is um, some research into intimate partner violence and understand people's understanding of that. So mm-hmm. let's have a little look at that. What was the research? Well, this is research conducted and led by Chiara Minto, um, along with myself and Barbara Masser, a professor in psychology. And what we're really interested in is understanding how the trajectory of intimate partner violence develops. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention, I don't know if it's traditional, the um, line 1800 respect, which is just a great resource if people are feeling a bit fragile for this conversation. Yeah, that's good. So, thanks. yeah. So um, intimate partner violence, as everyone knows, can be a, can be unpredictable. It can be erratic, but it also has systematic patterns that are very common. And one of them is escalation over time. And the early stages of intimate partner violence often can look like a pattern called coercive control, which maybe you don't know what that means. A lot of people don't know what it means, but it's the a pattern of monitoring, surveillance, and mm-hmm. um, intervening in people's lives that that can precede any physical intimate partner violence and is now recognized as a form of non-physical intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that learn that people learn to recognize it as um, non-physical intimate partner violence because 
both for perpetrators and for the targets or victims of this violence, recognizing it early can be a pathway to early intervention that might be successful, but also to leaving a relationship before you build a lot of commitments. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, so things like monitoring your emails or taking control of your money, not letting you see your friends, um, that kind of control over your wardrobe. These are all things that people often will interpret as benign or, or if not um, you know, positive, at least neutral. But actually they're um, a degree of controlling invasiveness that is a risk factor and in and of itself needs to be nipped in the bud. It's not respectful and it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So there are some programs that people have tried to give to young people to teach them to recognize that. But the work of that Kiara was doing was really quite simple, which was to try and demonstrate first that people sometimes can't even recognize this as abuse, which mm -hmm. is the case. People don't recognize the behaviors as abusive consistently. But also we were interested in understanding how um, factors that are known to predict intimate partner violence perpetration um, and also to the experience of it would be associated with this failure to recognize course of control. And what we found was that people who have these beliefs that jealousy is good for a relationship and that it's a sign of positive partner commitment are known from other um, research to be very much at risk of both perpetrating and receiving intimate partner violence. I mean, what we found was it was the failure to recognize coercive control as abusive that was the problem there. And I want to say that, of course, partners differ and some partners might, you know, choose to let one person handle all the money, for example. That was a tradition in the old days um, for many people that the man would handle the money and the woman wouldn't and so on. So I don't want to have listeners feel like they're being labeled or judged. But I just would like to um, say that in you know many relationships, that is not a neutral or cultural given, but rather a sign that someone isn't respecting their partner as a person and as someone who can control their own lives. And so what we found was, um, we think that this research shows addressing this belief that jealousy is good is perhaps something that could be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And it's important to do that culturally as well as individually because mm -hmm. there are a lot of cultural motifs in films and mm, in music yes. yeah. yeah, that portray the idea that if you're passionately jealous that that's a sign of somehow commitment or perhaps being a man or something like that. Yeah. And it's um, something that can go wrong, mm -hmm. right? So how do you change norms about what's acceptable in a relationship? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you. Um, I think there's multiple levels, let's just say individual, group and societal. Mm -hmm. So we know that at the individual level, people are exposed to these beliefs from their families and in their relationships. And so um, partly it's just about telling people and going up to them and saying, you know, kids, you don't deserve this. No one deserves this. This is not okay. And mm -hmm. that's an education program. Mm -hmm. At a group level, though, we do know that these norms are more common in certain communities mm -hmm. and in, that could be in certain um, institutions, whether that's a fraternity or mm -hmm. a particular profession, there are higher rates of domestic violence in some mm -hmm. of these professions than others. And so we need to have targeted interventions led by leaders of those groups, mm -hmm. because you can't just tell people, look, kids, it's not okay to treat a woman this way mm -hmm. if they go to work or they go to their sports team and all the men are yes. engaging in this kind of locker room talk that normalizes that kind of attitude and behavior. So we need to have people stepping up in those groups and really saying, 
I want to put my foot down. I don't want to hear this language. Yeah. This is not what our team's about. We really do not endorse this. Yeah. And only then will the people, the young people in particular, the young men, be able to step away from those kinds of messages. And then the third level is societal. And you might think of our political context. I mean, right now we have an alleged rapist as our minister of justice. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that sends a signal. And so I think we need to think about the societal norms. And that also is about cultural products. We've talked about film and television. Yes. I mean, especially in our generation, but even in the contemporary generation in music, it is too common to hear people normalizing and making light of instances of violence against women and yes. disrespect for women. And so um, engaging with artists, engaging with artistic communities, engaging with politicians, engaging with unions, and really talking about what kind of behavior we allow in the workplace and who yes. is best fit to represent us as a nation. Those are some societal pathways to change. Mm. Thank you for your insights. I think we might We might go to a song, but song? before we yep. do, if people want to read some more about that research or read the actual papers, you can go to the website of socialchangelab.net and uh, contact them for that. Yep.